So the most misunderstood word ever to ever be uttered. I mean, this is like, I'm a man of hyperbole, but this is really the most misunderstood word is the word faith. A few Sundays ago, we were talking about uh, grace and how misunderstood and mangled that was and how there's all these unbiblical definitions of grace in the culture and in our churches and everything. And it is really badly misunderstood, but nothing is worse than faith. Faith is the worst. And it's like if grace and faith were like persons, it's like grace is like, I bet there's no word that can be more misunderstood than me. And then faith is like a person's like, come along and says, well, you know what? Challenge accepted. That's like how it is. So just to give you an example of how people have abused and misunderstood the word faith, maybe, I mean, you might want to say this is like a misrepresentation, but people have really just toyed with it. And this is um, from a famous atheist scientist, Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion. Some of you may or may not have heard of him. I'm curious, who's heard of him? Richard Dawkins. So he's kind of a popular guy, right? So this is what he says. Faith is a great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think, evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. So Dawkins' definition is very similar to the Mark Twain definition of faith. Faith is belief in something you know you know ain't so. That's kind of the Mark Twain came up with that idea. The problem is, when you read the New Testament, you look at what the earliest Christians believe, you, you kind of look through the book of Acts, the apostles, when they preached the gospel, they said, you know, you know for certain that Jesus has rose from the dead. It's not like, maybe, or we're not really sure. No, they said, no, for certain. So there was a clear conviction and evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. So faith, according to the Bible, is not a cop-out. It's not something you know ain't true. Now, this is from William James, which no one's heard of because he's a philosopher. You know, philosophers 100 years, everybody forgets who they are. But this is, he gives a, a little bit more of a gracious definition, I want to say, of faith. Still misses the mark, but here's what he says. Faith means belief in something concerning which doubt is theoretically possible. Now, when we're in heaven together, glorifying God for billions and billions of years and uh, living in bliss, knowing Jesus... Is doubt going to be possible at that point? We're, before the, the glory of Jesus, there's not going to be any doubt. You're, there's not going to be no theoretical doubt, but yet there is this faith and trust relationship with the Lord that we're going to have. It's not going to like, faith's not going to just like disappear in heaven. This is what uh, actor uh, Tommy Lee Jones, who I always remember, for some reason, whenever I hear Tommy Lee Jones, the first thing I think of is Two-Face from the campy Batman Forever, when Val Kilmer played Batman, which, you know... I'm a Michael Keaton guy. I like him better. And, well, Christian Bale's the best, I think, personally. Best Batman. But I always think of that, for some reason, like this really cheesy depiction of Two-Face whenever I think of Tommy Lee Jones. Then I think, after that, uh, No Country for Old Men. So those are those two things I think of when I hear this. But, you know, this, he's got a really weird definition of faith. Talk about mangling here. I'm a believer in belief. Uh, faith is something that works, causes people to do things. It has results. It's intangible and definite, very real thing. And it moves people, sometimes to atrocity, sometimes to survival. Not sure what was going on there, but at any rate, that's not the positive definition of faith there. Faith in and of itself really doesn't have to do with causing atrocities. I'm not sure where that comes from. But yeah, in and of itself doesn't necessarily entail these things. You might think of scenarios where it might. Now, Sean Connery, who I just found out today, I mean, he didn't die today, but I found out he died in 2020. 
I didn't know that. I, was, I read it and I was like, oh man, I'm so sad. I love Sean Connery. I never forget that Trebek impression from SNL. That's always in my mind. But he was the first 007. And I was just, I, I just found out today that he died. I'm, I'm, I'm warning right now. How did I miss? I mean, it was 2020. I mean, a lot of bad things were happening. You know, huh? you know what I'm talking about. So it's easy to miss, like, you know, I feel like when Michael Jackson died, there was like a funeral procession on the TV. Sean Connery, the first 007, he gets nothing. I don't even remember it. So anyways, I was just kind of bummed about Sean Connery's death. Oh, sorry. Okay, I'm processing here, everybody. So this is what he says. And he's wrong, but you know, he's, but he's still a great guy. Laughter kills fear. And without fear, there can be no faith. For without fear of the devil, there is no need for God. So, yeah, this is saying in order to have faith, you actually have to be, like, scared, like, afraid. And that doesn't make sense because in heaven, you're not going to be afraid of anything. You're in the perfect peace and presence of the Lord Jesus. You're not going to be afraid, so you're still going to have trust and faith. And so, as you can see from these quotes, faith is a mangled word in our culture. No one knows what it means. It's misunderstood so often. It's, it's, it's very common for pastors to try to like, see just all the misrepresentation of the word faith. Now, whenever you see the word faith in the New Testament, that's a Greek word for, that means pistis in Greek. That's a, the, old, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. That was what it was written in. It wasn't written in King James English. I've heard some people say things like that. No, it was written in Greek, Koine Greek. And so, so that, the meaning of that Greek word then is just basically, it's, if you remember anything else, it's synonymous with trust. So faith and trust in Greek just means the same thing. It's not some like third appendage or special category out there. No, faith, it just is the word trust. So whenever you see the word faith, faith in there, if you want to, don't cross out your Bible. Don't say cross out in your Bible. Don't, don't do that. Don't cross out anything in your Bible. Just think trust. That's all I'm saying. And so, yeah, it's, this, this word is very clearly taught in the Bible as, as trust. And if, if you look at it, and that's a condition by which we have saving, uh, we have salvation is by trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, I have talked to some non-Christian friends of mine who think this is kind of strange, this idea that we need to believe or trust in Jesus to go to heaven to be saved. And they're like, well, why would salvation, why would that be by trusting in, in Jesus? Why am I going to heaven by trusting? And they're like, well, that's so weird. It seems kind of like this random arbitrary, bizarre act that God has kind of arbitrarily commanded. Say, okay, I, yeah, I guess by believing in Jesus, that's how you get in. That seems random or bizarre to some people, some of my uh, non-Christian friends. And so we're going to be looking at why God requires faith for salvation. It's not just salvation, but it's the way we grow in the Christian life. We grow in faith. That is what it means to grow as a Christian, is to grow in our faith. And so why is faith in Jesus, why is believing in Jesus, why is that so important to God? Why does that matter to God? And so we're going to be looking at these uh, questions in reference to Abraham's faith as we finish up Romans 4. Let's look at Romans 4.18 first. In hope, he believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. Now, that, the expression believing against hope, that's like an oxymoron. Oxymoron is like, you know, it, it, like the idea of like something like his opposites, like awfully good. 
oxymoron. And this oxymoron is communicating the idea that, okay, the circumstances made it appear like there was no hope, but there was hope. And so, yeah, hope against hope is an oxymoron. Another good oxymoron is organized chaos, or my favorite, a bad In-N-Out burger. That's an oxymoron, because all In-N-Out burgers are good, <laughs> said the Californian. And so Abraham had hope that he would have this son, even though there were circumstances that would usually count against it. It counts kind of against this idea. There was, there, was, there was a lot going against it in terms of like from a natural point of view. And yeah, and so this is, this is kind of what's going on here. You read the next verse, what, what, what the promise was and more specifics on that. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. I feel like that's kind of offensive towards old people. It's good as death's not nice. But the Bible <laughs> says some very intense things sometimes. But that's, yes, it means good as dead, meaning like you're not going to have any children from that. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So, yeah, I mean, the hope against hope here is like you're 100 and your wife's 90. People have trouble getting pregnant at 50. And so you're looking at these circumstances and like, all right, is God going to fulfill his promise? And that's, but he still hoped by looking at the promises of God that, yeah, he is going to be the father of many nations. Even though his wife is 90, he's 100. You know, you're like, that's got to be some kind of a record there if they have kids. And so he's looking, he's trusting in these promises, even though these circumstances uh, were just counting against it from what it appeared. And by the way, this is where people get the idea that faith is against evidence from passages like these. And they'll often cite uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 7. So we are always of good courage. For we know while we are at home in the body and we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, by, by, oh my gosh, that was a mangling of sight and faith. Faith. Um, we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, never mind this verse is talking about the fact that we currently don't see that we're in heaven with the Lord. We have to look at that promise and hope for that. We don't see it visually. It's obviously true. But that doesn't mean that we have no reason to believe that we're going to be with the Lord in heaven. We're not going to someday be in his glorious presence and enjoying a relationship with him. And so in Abraham's case, the present circumstances appeared to count against the idea that he was ever having a kid. He's 100, his wife's 90. But he believed the promise because he had evidence. He knew who God was. He looked to who God was and his promises is okay. No, I do have reason to believe this in the verse we preached on last Sunday. I preached on like we preached together. I preached on last Sunday. It says this, as it is written, this is the evidence. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead. He knows God can do that. Give life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, creation out of nothing. And so Abraham knew that, hey, if God can make dead things alive, he can give me and my wife a kid when I'm 100 years old and she's 90. This is a God who brings things out of nothing. At least he's got something to work with here. And so, yeah. So he looked at God's truth and who God is and said, okay, this is, this is the all-powerful God who created the universe and everything in it. I think I can believe him when he says he's going to do this. If he can bring things out of nothing, I'm pretty sure he can bring a child out of something here. And so this is why he had reasons to go off the, the promise and the word of God and creation. And so this does not show that faith is against all reason and all evidence. Abraham, Abraham had these good reasons for trusting in Christ. We always have 
good reasons for trusting in Christ. That's what faith is. Trust is not devoid of reasons. I trust my wife. I really do. I would say I have pretty good reasons. Like, well, I have faith in you, honey, but I have no good reason. You're, you're sleeping on the couch if you say something like that. All right? Just a fact. So, yeah, I mean, but you know what? Say, like, you know, there was, like, a murderer who escaped from Draper Prison, right? And it's like, hey, you know, can I watch your kids? You're like, well, I'm just going to have faith. I have no reason to trust you because you're a murderer that escaped from Draper Prison, but I'm just going to have faith. You're like, no, that's like, you're, that's like child endangerment. What are you doing? And so, yeah, that idea of faith just being, like, against reason, no one's going to have a murderer watch their kids, knowingly at least. I'm just kidding. Does sound right? I should just stop talking sometimes. Uh, and so, but when you're in heaven, you're going to have perfect trust in God when you're in heaven. You're going to have a perfect relationship. Your, your trust in heaven is going to be perfect. It's not going to like your trust, like, okay, now I'm in heaven, God, I don't trust you anymore. And let me tell you, when you're before the Lord of glory, you're going to have plenty of reasons right then and there. It's not like faith is going to disappear. And so we're not dead now, we're not in heaven now, but we trust that's going to happen for a lot of good reasons, like the resurrection, all these other things, and the truth of God's word. And so, yeah, but let's be real here. We're not there yet. There are some things that happen in this life that are so tough, that are so difficult just for our minds to wrap, again, wrap around and to really contemplate that are just so hard. It makes us doubt, makes us struggle. You see, there are, there are things like a death of a child or a divorce or whatever it is where you just like looking off in the middle distance, you know, at midnight and you think to yourself, geez, why am I going through all this? Does God really love me? How can, how can he be good and have this happen to me? Like those things rip us up. When you commit a horrible, awful sin and it, your faith feels weak, Think to yourself, oh my gosh, like, I really messed up here. How can God love me I, after I've committed this heinous sin? How could he forgive me? Am I even saved? I can tell you so many people struggle with that. So many people. And so what we have to do as Christians is look to Jesus, look to the promises of God, look to the gospel and say, oh yes, okay, yeah, that's a reminder, God does love me. When you look to what Jesus did on that cross, taking the infinite Death and weight and wrath of God for us. Punishment and suffering will never understand. When you realize what Jesus did for you and you look to the gospel, taking the punishment for all of your sins, and you say, he loved me that much, then you say, yes, God does love me. We look at Christ. We look at the gospel. And this is why we preach the gospel here every Sunday, because... The gospel helps us have faith in God and it promises that he has forgiven all of our sins. Even when times are tough, even when we feel like we really mess up, we have to kind of, kind of nail that Romans 8.28 promise in our head and say, yes, all things work out good for, for those who love him. He's working all things out. Even though I don't see it right now, I trust in the promises of God because he can create out of nothing. I'm pretty sure he can, he can mend all your problems in the final result. And so we look at the gospel, we look at the promises, and we say, of course God loves me. He will never leave me or forsake me. But the circumstances are hard. They're, they're difficult. The feelings are hard. And we have to look outside of our feelings to the objective promises of the gospel, outside of us to the, to the truth that all of our sins are forgiven. I love the way that uh, Pastor Tim Keller puts it. He currently has cancer, so be praying for him. But he says this, faith is not opposed to reason, but it is sometimes opposed to our feelings 
and appearances. That's so true. So, you know, something terrible happens. You're like, oh, man, there's no way. Um, you know, this is horrible. God must hate me. He's mad at me. And, but when you look to the gospel, you know, you know, I can't trust my feelings. I trust the promises of God. And that will, that will your feelings in time will, 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 will basically resolve in some ways. And you learn to trust more in this as God who loves you so much. So we have to reflect on the gospel. Reflecting, thinking, having the gospel in our minds Fix before our minds rather than fixing our circumstances in our mind. Because if you look at your circumstances, I mean, you could find many things in the world that would depress you beyond belief if you just focus on those things. Just pull up the news. Just look at it. You can just see it all the time. I mean, so yeah, if you're focused on circumstances in the world, you are going to get depressed. You are going to be totally downtrodden. But we fix the gospel before our minds and what God has done in Christ. We reflect on that. It just changes everything. Because now those bad things going on, I see those working out for my ultimate good. And I love the way Keller puts it again when he writes, faith is not the absence of thinking. I know many people who think that. It's not like, okay, let's go brain dead faith. No, it's loving the Lord your God with all your mind. Faith is not the absence of thinking, but rather a profound insistence on acting out of measured reflection instead of just reacting to circumstances. So yeah, focusing on negative things in your life, negative circumstances, they're only going to bring greater doubt. They're only going to bring you down. The only way you're going to grow in your faith is focusing on what Jesus did for you, focusing on the gospel, focusing on the promises of God as Abraham did. See, it's this active reflection. We have to commit ourselves to this active reflection because you let your mind go every time, guarantee it's going somewhere negative. If you let it, but looking at the promises of God mitigates against that. It, it, we have to con control ourselves on this reflection of the gospel. That's why we got to go to church every Sunday to hear the gospel preached, to have it fixed before our minds how much God loves us and what God in Christ has done for us to show his love, that he was forsaken so that you will never be forsaken. So you can never think, oh man, this is going bad. My kid's not turning out right. God must be mad at me. That isn't the case. Look what Jesus did for you. It's going to work out. Next verse confirms that Abraham reflected on the promises rather than his negative circumstances. Verse 20 and 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. We focus on what Jesus did, changes our life, gives glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So faith growing not by circumstances, but by the promise. Thinking about, okay, God can do anything. He can bring dead things alive, things that are nothing. He can, look, what, look who God is. Look what he's, he's a gracious, loving, powerful God. Look, what he, look who God is, reflecting on that and what God has done in Christ. Grows our faith, helps us give glory to God. This is what verse 22 says. This is why his faith, excuse me, was counted to him as righteousness, so his faith is counted as righteous because his faith is growing. And the fact that there's growth in someone's faith shows that they had true saving faith in, in the promises of God and in Christ. A fake faith does not save anybody. So no one will be declared righteous with a fake faith. A fake faith is like James chapter 2 talks about the demons believing and shuddering. They don't really have a sincere trust in Jesus. They may cognitively believe certain things about you know, Jesus and doctrine. It says the demons believe on some level. But they don't trust in Christ for their salvation. They don't have a biblical trust and faith. They don't have an authentic trust. And so if someone doesn't have an authentic trust, 
then that won't apprehend Christ's righteousness. But if someone really trusts in Christ to save them of all their sins, then yeah, that, that faith will grow. And that faith, when you believe, will count to you as righteousness and all your sins are forgiven and you are clothed in the perfect righteous robes of Jesus Christ. So when we look to the gospel, we are, our faith grows and grows all the more. That's a sign that you have true, saving, authentic trust in Jesus Christ. Looking at Romans 4.23, says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, being declared righteous. He was raised so that we can be declared righteous. I have heard so many people say, well, you know that Old Testament? That's for the, that's for the Israelites. That's for the Jewish people. New Testament, that's for the Gentiles, the nations. Old Testament's for the Jews, New Testament's for the Gentiles. And so, you know what? Yeah, don't worry about the Old Testament, you know. Don't, don't read through that thing, you know. Read the New Testament. The Old Testament, that's, you know, old and scary stuff. Let's just for the Jewish people, just get away from it. That's, no, though no, he's saying it's written to us too. And Paul does this throughout his letters, you know, just all the time about how the Old Testament's not just a Jewish book, it's a Christian book. It's a book for us to learn and reflect. It, all of it's God's word, and so God's word applies to our lives. It's important. Just to give you one example of how this, how you know, clearer this is in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 10, about paying those who labor in the ministry, like pastors and evangelists. It says here, verse 9, For it was written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing the crop, getting, getting benefits from the work that they're doing. And so Paul is using this Old Testament law that applies to oxen, basically, and applies it to providing for pastors. I mean, how odd is that, that something that applies to livestock can be applied to pastors? Hopefully... No one gets any weird ideas about this, like, let's have Pastor Nate sleep outside and eat hay. Don't do that. That'd be weird. Getting aside, though, I mean, yeah, that's the principle of the Old Testament law. It's able to apply in that interesting case to, to a general principle. Another example that is used is, you know, today, I mean, I've never been up on my roof. I don't know if you guys have been up on a roof, but I, I don't think I've actually... I don't think I've ever been up on a roof ever. I mean, if, unless it's a building or something. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been up on a roof ever. So, but in the Old Testament, they have this law that, that says that, okay, if you're building a roof, you've got to have a fence around because people would just chill out in their roof. And, you know, you've got a three-year-old and they're just, you know, they do what they do. They run off everywhere and they fall off and then everybody's really sad. I mean, yeah, that's sad. Yeah, but um, sorry, that didn't come out right. Just deleted. So, yeah, so, you, you know, you have, a, you know, this fence around the roof and, yeah, it provides pr protection and safety. You're not being negligent. And so the, the principle is, we, you know, we shouldn't be negligent. You know, if someone's got, like, you know, a dangerous area, they should block that off. That's a principle, though. Today, we, no one's on roofs, really, and so we don't need to have fences against roofs. No one's on them ever. And so in populated areas where you have people that are going to be hanging out and this unsafe, they need to fence it off. There needs to be caution, not negligence. There needs to be protection for people to be safe. And so that's a principle here that it, we, don't apply, we don't apply it the same way. We apply it differently in our culture, in our context, because God's word is for everybody, not just for Israel and the Jewish people. 
Romans 15.4 really drives this point home in a general sense here. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instructions that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have, have hope. So it's those things written formerly. That's for us, too. That's for you and me. So read your Old Testament. I, knew, I know one pastor who has had 40-plus years of ministry. And like this guy's gone through like New Testament books twice. I think, he, I think he's done only two Old Testament books. The guy's going through Romans again. I'm like, come on. You got to get to the, uh, it's all the word of God. And so we have to treat it equally as the word of God. Read it and have devotions in, you know, the Old Testament. And you get the Gideon's Bible. You only get like Proverbs and the Psalms in there. Have you guys ever gotten a Gideon Bible before? Okay, no one knows what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, but they, yeah, they hand them out and they have only Proverbs. But I mean, the whole Old Testament's, God's word, not just the Proverbs and the Psalms. It's all for us. I want to draw your attention to verses 24 and 25. Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So we often talk about the cross, like Jesus dying on the cross for all of our sins, satisfying the wrath of God so we can be declared righteous by faith and all that kind of stuff. We don't often hear that our salvation and our just being declared righteous in Christ is based on also his resurrection. It's not just his death, but his, it's his life, it's his death, and his resurrection. Everything Jesus did is for our salvation. So he was raised for our justification means that if he was not raised, you and I would not be saved. We would still be in our sins. We would not be forgiven. Why is this? Why does Paul say this? Well, imagine if Jesus never rose from the dead. Maybe he says, I, whoa, that's intense. So yeah, okay, back to the, imagine Jesus never died, uh, never rose. See, now I'm all, I'm all flummoxed. Imagine that Jesus never rose and he just died on the cross and he would say, oh, I'm going to die for your sins. How do you know that God accepted his sacrifice? Because you know what? In the first century, there were a lot of people that claimed to be Messiah that failed. They died, and, they, and so how do we know Jesus is just not another one of these failed messiahs? How do we know he's the real McCoy, the legit thing going on here? How do we know this? Well, he rose from the dead. He conquered death. And so because he rose again, that authenticates his ministry. His, it means that God accepts his sacrifice and that our sins are forgiven. So it gives us confirmation, and it, it, God showing the world saying, hey, I accept the sacrifice, and that's why the resurrection is part of the gospel. Because it is essential to our salvation. The resurrection is not like something, oh, maybe you can believe it or not, like end time stuff. No, it's, it's foundational to our faith that he conquered death and that his resurrection is a verification of everything he said. And it also is a verification that God accepts the sacrifice for our sins. And so what we have seen is that you get this justification by faith in what Christ accomplished for us by his life his death and his resurrection. We receive us by faith. So what, why does it matter to God? Going back to the question, why does it matter to God that we believe in Jesus? Why not, you know, believing in like world peace or giving to the poor? Any skeptics, uh, many of my like skeptic friends would be like, well, I mean, there are better things to believe in than Jesus. Why does like our eternal Destiny hinge on whether we have faith on this in this in the person of Christ. Why is this? And there's two answers to this question. The first is that faith, as I said before, it just means trust, and to have any relationship, 
You have to have trust. If you talk to any, anyone, any counselor, and you say, I can't you know, trust this person at all, you're like, well, then it's, not, it's a bad relationship or it isn't a relationship at all. And according to John 17, eternal life is, is trusting in Christ. It is having a relationship with him. That's the first step of the relationship is trust. So you need to have that with him. And so that's why he says you've got to trust in Jesus to start that relationship with God because Jesus is God. That's a very first step. But the second reason, and I, I really love this reason by Tim Keller, is faith is, is, is a significant act when you trust in Christ. It is significant in and of itself. This is how he says it. Faith begins with a kind of death to self-trust. It's a death of self-trust. What that means is that, you know, when you're trusting in Christ, you're no longer trusting in yourself to save yourself. You're not going to think, okay, well, you know, I can, I can muster up enough strength to save myself. You're saying, no, I don't trust me to save me. I trust Jesus in, 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 instead. That's who I trust to be my savior. That is my salvation. It's in Christ. I cannot do this. I cannot save myself. I cannot pull this off. Only Jesus can. That's all I have to bank on. And that's why, you know, we talk about sin and failing and messing up because that allows you to know I can't trust myself. I need to trust a perfect person, the God outside of myself. And you know what? We as Americans... I always say, people hate to be told what to do, but there is one thing we hate more, is being told that there's nothing we can do. We hate that. And so, you know, it's like a death to self-trust, saying, okay, I can't, I can't save myself. I can't do this. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I'm resting on you, Jesus. It's, it's, you're all I have. It's all I got. I trust you to forgive me of all my sins and failures. I'm not going to try to justify myself. I'm resting on you. And so it means turning away from yourself and turning to Christ. That's why faith is so significant. Why God, it matters to God. And it's not just that he dies for sinners or he dies for some general sense of people who, uh, who struggle in sin and mess up. It's that he died for me specifically. When he was on that cross, he was thinking of me. He was thinking of you. Paul says it really well in Galatians 2, the clearest way, who loved me, Jesus, and gave himself up for me, died for us specifically. You can believe something general, but it means a lot more when it's specifically tied to you, when it's specifically uh, uh, it's something that, that works for you. I, this is an interesting illustration. Charles Bludeen, who's uh, Blondine, who's, you know, no one's ever heard of because it's so long ago. It's like the 1900s. Hey, you know, they used to talk all weird when you watch old movies. I always remember that. Like people in the 1900s, early, early on, they would talk so strange. And it's interesting how accents change. Anyways, I'm, I don't know why I'm on that. So let's go back to this. <laughs> so Charles Blondine, he's this guy, and he was like, you know, he's a circus guy. He can he's a trapeze and everything. He, but he was the most amazing. He could like walk on a tightrope in like... The, I mean, over the Niagara Falls, and he actually did this. He saw the Niagara Falls. He's like, I'm going to put a, um, a tightrope in between these things and just walk across and get people's attention. For me, I would rather die. Than, I'm like, my, like, when I watch those Facebook videos of people like going on like heights and standing on like things, my hands like start to sweat. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm so afraid of heights. Cannot even tell you. But this guy would walk across Niagara Falls on stilts. On stilts. <laughs> That's crazy. Who does that? Like, really? Well, Charles Bladine, he does it. He's, he's really something. 
And so this is going somewhere, okay, in case, in case you were confused. And so people would watch him and they'd cheer on. I mean, he had a big crowd. I mean, who doesn't want to see a guy on stilts walk across a tightrope over Niagara Falls? I mean, I want to be a part of that as my hands are sweating. So yeah, and so, and so he would walk across with a wheelbarrow. I mean, this guy cooked an omelet on a wheelbarrow on top of Niagara Falls on a tightrope. I mean, this guy is intense. They said the omelet was good, too. In case you were wondering about that. So, and then, so he goes across with a little bear and he asks the crowd, he's like, okay, so you guys believe I can uh, take a person across on this wheelbarrow? Everybody's like, oh yeah, yeah, you totally, totally, you could, you've, you've cooked an omelet, you know, you've been on stilts, you could take somebody across that thing on a wheelbarrow, no problem, you could put a person in there. He's like, well, does anybody want to be a volunteer? The crowd fell silent. I'd be one of those silent, very, very silent. You couldn't pay me enough money to do that, okay? But finally, there was one brave soul who put their trust in Charles to get him across Niagara Falls on a tie rope, and they did it. And so that guy trusted Charles with his own life. I mean, really hardcore in ways that would make me uncomfortable. Here's a question. Do you trust Jesus like that? Do you trust him with your eternal destiny? That's why faith matters so much. Because it's not only a starting point of a relationship with God, it's saying, I don't trust myself to save myself. It's only you, Jesus. My salvation, my eternal destiny, rests in your hands, Lord, not in mine. You know, as you get to know the grace of Jesus and walk with him for many, many years, you will come to find that there's no other hands you'd want to be in placed in the arms and hands of a loving, caring Savior, kind and gracious. That's the only place where I feel safe. That's the only place where I feel accepted. That's the only place where I have true peace. And that's the only place I know I will never be cast out, never rejected. Everybody in this world can reject you. Christ, if you come to him, he'll never cast you out. He'll never reject you. He'll always accept you. He will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. There's no hands, there's no trust better than Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I love how Jesus says it, and we'll close with this. In John 10, 27 to 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, the most secure hand. So, if you haven't, I'd ask you to place your life in, your, in the hands of Christ. Trust in him. He will never leave you or forsake you. You will have eternal life. Pray that, hope and pray that if you haven't yet, that you would make that decision to trust in him. Let us pray.